going to spend all month talking about rhythm of life, but this is the shorthand. It's keeping in step with the life of God. And there's three dimensions that we're going to explore this month. Really, introduce them this week and then each week after that. The three dimensions of rhythm of life are about time, about limits, and about habits. Time, limits, and habits. Now, this is how rhythm works. If you think of music, if you think of poetry, rhythm is about timing. It's about a note on a page. There's a difference between a half note and a quarter note and an eighth note. There's, there's a timing element that is essential to rhythm. It's movement in time. But it's movement in time alongside rests and pauses and stops. It can only be rhythm if there are limits to the movement or to the sound. It's, it's time plus limits, but also it is movement. It's the habits, it's, it's the activity. These, these three pieces. So rhythm is in time, and then rhythm is the balance of movement and rest. And it's about order, it's about patterns, it's about emphasis. Now if you wanted me to like drop a, a bar, you're gonna realize that I don't have rhythm. Like if you want me to start dancing, you'll realize that this guy doesn't have rhythm. So I can't be an illustration of rhythm, but you know exactly what I mean by rhythm, don't you? It's, so what do we mean by a rhythm of life? A rhythm of life is where you take that timing and those limits and those behaviors and movements and you turn them into something that is good and beautiful, that is actually made for life and for flourishing. So this is a value in our church. And what we're trying to do is basically draw out what was implicit and make it explicit. Here's, here's what I mean. Our, our current values of spirit-led movement, we always saw rhythm of life within them. And now we're just trying to draw it out and say, this actually stands on its own. Rhythm of life, we thought, was in spirit-led movement. Because if you're seeking the spirit and to be moved by the spirit, you're going to be in step with the rhythm of God. It was there in spirit-led movement. It was also there in renewed identity. Because the reality is, anytime you're feeling out of rhythm, it's likely because some idol of a false self has, has come up. And it's, you're acting out of a false self, and you need that renewed identity, that, that true self. We saw rhythm of life within a beloved family. That's why we, we have groups, and we have rhythms, even in our community life. That's why we do liturgy. That's... A lot of the things we do as a community, we saw it already there. We saw it there in holistic ministry. Because it's the whole gospel for the whole person for the whole world. And so if it's the whole person, you're going to need healthy rhythms. But at the same time, we realized that what was implicit needed to become explicit. Here's why. Because we realized that this was a value every time it got tested. It got tested in a lot of ways. One of the ways a value can be tested is just through people questioning why. We got asked a lot of questions in that first year about why we're doing this or that or that. And almost, I wouldn't say almost all, most of the questions we got about why had to do with our rhythms, our group rhythms. Why are we playing? Why are we serving? Why aren't we doing more of this and less of this? Why are we doing liturgies? Why are we doing the same thing day after day? What? Christmas and Easter, I know. But what is this Advent and Lent and Pentecost and All Saints? What is this? 
what is this rhythm? And as we answered, we realized that we needed to make some of our rhythm choices explicit. Just straight into the middle chair. So first time, not the last It's tested by questions. It's also tested when we saw people's personal choices and personal rhythms. This happened in two ways. We saw people come to life whenever they adopted their own rhythm of life through Welcome Home. And we saw people wither on the vine when they stopped practicing a rhythm of life. We realized that some of this is not innate, it doesn't come naturally, and it's something that we need to keep coming back to. Because of how much life it brings, then how sapped we get without it. There's personal rhythms, there's also group rhythms. Our groups are one of the most important features of life here at Oikos Church. Um, if you're not in a group right now, our, our goal and by the end of Welcome Home is to get you active in an Oikos group. And we have this rhythm where we worship in home on the first Sunday of the week. We play together every month. We try to serve together every month. We reflect together every month. And this is a really important rhythm. But many of our groups have struggled to be in that rhythm. And then it plays out in ways where, where people are feeling disconnected. And so we realize that it's not just the personal rhythms need guarded and held onto. Our group and communal rhythms do as well. Last reason it was tested is because we felt it in some of our leaders. Now, as, you'll, uh, as you've already experienced and as you'll see in the series, part of rhythm of life means recognizing the season of life that you're in. If you're a child, you're in a different rhythm than if you're in college. And if you're in college, you're even in a different rhythm than in grad school. And a young single person has a different rhythm than a young married person who has a different rhythm than a, a family, who has a different rhythm than an empty nester. Every season of life has these kind of pushes and pulls, these ebbs and flows of rhythm. But when it comes to a church, a church also has seasons of life. And birth, the planting of a new church, is a really important season to kind of get your bearings and, and have everything established. And so what began as a really important season where many of us needed to work very hard, then has to transition into a different season if it's going to be sustainable. And so some of our leaders, we saw them working in a frenzy and in a fury, and they were getting tired and burned out. And so we realized that we needed to put some limits into our ministry teams for the sake of our leaders and for the sake of burnout. We saw this at a lot of levels, and we realized that, yes, it's implicit, but it needs to become explicit if our community is going to continue to be a place of healing, a place of transformation, and a place of life. So that's where we're coming from. And this month, where we're going is to look at the rhythm of life in terms of time, limits, and habits. And we're going to be looking at Genesis 1, 2, and 3 to do that. Today, we'll be in Genesis 1, but really, I want to invite you not just to think about it in terms of a church. A big part of why an organization would say this is a value is to inspire people to participate in that value. And I think this isn't something that you really need inspired to, to lean into. I think this is something your heart already longs for. There's a few dimensions of what I mean. Can you just take a moment 
and just kind of take inventory of where you're at in rhythm. Now, you've been doing that already this morning. You've even shared the table around some of your rhythms. But I just want you to, I'm going to give you about 30 seconds of silence to just take inventory of where you're at in your rhythms with God, your rhythms with work, your rhythms of sleep, your rhythms with people and without people, your rhythms of noise and silence, your rhythms of your children, yourself, your spouse, your roommate, your parents, your, your core relationships. Can you just take, take a moment and just kind of draw to mind what stands out to you? And then I want, I want to kind of reflect on this experience of being out of work. Where do you most often feel like you're in a hurry? Where do you most often feel like you're not enough? Which days of the week do you come to life? When in your day do you get to experience the fullness of God? I think just a few moments of silence, we can realize that a lot of our lives are lived out of rhythm. Like if I was trying to dance or rap in front of you, it would be like, what is he doing? This isn't good. This isn't leading to beauty or to life. I don't want it. I just want to turn my eyes from what's happening. I think a lot of us are living lives like that, whether other people know it or not. Feels constantly like we're hurried and busy. I think a lot of us are searching for margin. There's uh, Rebecca Lyons in her book on rhythms of renewal. She's showing just the mental health disorders and issues that are exploding right now in terms of especially anxiety, but also depression. Richard Swinson, he's a, an MD, a doctor, and he wrote a book on margin. He says, we find ourselves in the midst of an unnamed epidemic. The disease of marginless living. Byung-Chul Han, a Korean-German philosopher, wrote The Burnout Society. He says, every age has its signature afflictions. Some have bacteria, some have virus. This book came out in 2015, that's pre-COVID. And he says, everybody's worried, there's widespread fear of an influenza pandemic. Sure enough. <laughs> but thanks to immunological technology, he says, this will not be our undoing. We will find a cure. He says, but from a pathological standpoint, the incipient 21st century is determined neither by bacteria nor by viruses, but by neurons. Neurological illnesses such as depression, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, borderline personality disorder, burnout syndrome, they mark the landscape of pathology at the beginning of the 21st century. He says they do not follow from the negativity like an immunology, but instead from an excess of positivity. He says the problem with these things is that there's no cure. There's no more what he calls a dialectic. And so it, 
it has this society where everyone is told, he says it's moved from a, a culture of no to a culture of yes, from a culture of discipline to a culture of performance. He says they're entrepreneurs of themselves. We wear ourselves out in a rat race run against ourselves. We have to constantly produce and constantly perform just to be ourselves. So he says most of us are growing tired from just trying to be ourselves. He says this culture of yes, this culture of uh, positivity, he says it doesn't lead to a society where everyone is free and has leisure. Rather, it leads to a society in which work, uh, the society of work in which the master himself has become a laboring slave. In this society of compulsion, everyone carries a work camp inside. It's this achievement society, he calls it. And he says the achievement society will soon give way to a doping society because we will buckle under its pressure. And our consumer culture incentivizes all of this. Now, burnout has become, in the language of Ann Peterson, a long-term problem. It's no longer a momentary affliction because burnout has been monetized and incentivized. There's a whole industry built on treating our exhaustion only to feed the cycle. So there's treatment plans and spa days and vacations and therapy. They all depend on us feeling overwhelmed. And so, to feed the cycle, we continue this, this process. So the prescription that Richard Swenson, the MD, says, he says, you have this symptom, and it's our pain. The diagnosis, he says, the reason why, is overload. And the prescription is margin. And the prognosis is health. Marginless is fatigue. Margin is energy. Marginless is ready. Margin is blacking. Marginless is hurry. Margin is calm. Marginless is anxiety. Margin is security. Marginless is culture. Margin is countercultural. Marginless is the disease of the new millennium. Margin is its cure. I think many of us are searching for margin, but we're also, some of us are searching for meaning. You see, not everybody in the room feels overwhelmed. Some of you are actually winning in what Yonkul Chan calls the the achievement society. You're winning because you're achieving. It's actually going well for you. You are a good performer in the performance culture. But even as we perform day after day after day, it can start to feel like a grind, like a churn. Like you're just doing the same thing again and again and again. To what end? What difference am I actually making in my life or in this world? I may be doing really well and making lots of money, but my meaning is disappearing. I was reading a book from a philosopher, lots of philosophy today, named Joseph Minich, and it's called The Bulwarks of Unbelief. And what he does is he shows in what context does atheism become plausible. He says, if you look at the history of the world, there's no atheist, really. There's no, I mean, you can find one or two here or there, but there's no atheist until about the 1800s. You can live and not know a single atheist. How did we get to a culture where everyone is doubting and everyone, where atheism is plausible and widespread? He says, it originated in the 1860s among poor working class people. Several things happened. First, they moved from the country into the city. There's an urbanization that happens. And then as they move into the cities, they do so to work in factories and industries. It's industrialization. This is Karl Marx and his critique 
of our alienation from our work. So if we're experiencing alienation from our work, what are we actually doing here? We're just working on machines that make things. And then an alienation from our place. We're displacing, we're moving all the time. And then we have this displacement from our community and our people. This is the first kind of community where atheism became plausible with poor working people who moved into cities to work in factories and they felt alienated from God, from themselves, and from their people. He says the next burst of atheism came in the 1960s, 100 years later. And it's all the same conditions, people moving into cities, except it was not happening with poor people working in factories. Now it was happening with middle class people. And it was the rise not of technology in a factory, but of technology that, that was all over the home and all of, it was television and what became phones and it's just this rise of technic, of technology. And so we've been placated by these consumer products that will mask the God of the universe and the people around us so that we don't even notice all the meaning. And it feels to even us like we aren't even meaningful because of the world that we're living in. He says those are the conditions where atheism is plausible. It's a lack of meaning. It's an experience of alienation from everything around us. So even if you're doing well, it feels like, why? And so I think most of us, underneath these two things, we're searching for presence. Searching for presence. And Kelly Cabbage, the book, You're Only Human, he says this, amid the growing sense of feeling incessantly busy, always flirting with distraction." and rarely honoring the rhythms of the earth and our bodies and our relationships, I would identify the underlying challenge with one word, presence. Being present in the sense of being fully engaged with God and the others and others in our immediate circumstances, it doesn't fit in our world of hurry and its demands to do more, better, constantly. We struggle to be present. And I think that makes us all the more susceptible to anxiety. He says underneath, the search for margin and the search for meaning is actually a search for presence. How many of us can be in a room with people in totally in a different place? Where we can be digitally connected to others and ignoring, we can't even be present with the people at our <coughs> tables. How much more could we be present with the invisible God who is our community? We're searching for margin, for just more time, because we feel overwhelmed. And even if you're doing well, we're searching for meaning. And underneath these two, we're searching for presence. How do we find margin and meaning and presence? I think the answer is rhythm of life. So rhythm of life isn't just something that's important to our church. Rhythm of life, as we'll see today in Genesis 1, it's something that's essential to you as a human, to you as a person. And it's essential to you as a human, as a person, because it was essential to God. It's part of who he is. And it's something that's built by God into creation itself. Let's just look at Genesis 1 and some and 2 and just draw some reflections on where we notice rhythm. There's a lot of ways to read Genesis 1. If you love Bible Project like I do, everything they make starts in Genesis 1. 
And so this is basically saying, where does our theme of time and limit and habit come from? Where is rhythm in Genesis 1 and 2? Let's, let's just dive in right here. The first thing we'll see is the rhythm of creation. Rhythm of creation. Genesis reveals a world in rhythm. Genesis reveals a world in rhythm, and it does it in a lot of ways. Rhythm, it can be music, it can be dancing, but first, rhythm is poetry. And in the language of Genesis, rhythm is all over the place. It's structure, it's patterns, it's themes. Uh, it starts here. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in this narrative, it starts out with a hidden rhythm embedded in the Hebrew language. This sentence has seven words. The next sentence is going to have two sets of seven words. And these sets of seven words will introduce seven paragraphs, which are about the seven days. And then the seventh day, it will close in this, again, rhythm of seven and seven and seven. There's a rhythm here. There's, there's a poetry here to what Genesis 1 is showing us about creation. The, the first rhythm we see is the rhythm of seven. And it says, this is the second one. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So we dive straight into the creation of the world by God, and God is doing creation in rhythm. It's there. But if you look at all of chapter 1, you'll see that time centers and frames the rhythm of creation. Here's what I mean. If you just look at the days of creation, the ones that have to do with time centers day four and frames as the outside, day one and day seven. So these days, they're structurally, poetically, rhythmically, Genesis 1 is communicating something about rhythm itself, about time. If you just look at day four, so day four is what's centered if you just look at this through the lens of time. Here's what day four says. God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years and let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth and it was so now it goes on to actually say more and it's not not a coincidence the day four says more about itself than all the other days because this day is somehow, in its own way, a climax of this creation story. Now, the, the ultimate destination is humans in the image of God, and then as we'll see, day seven. But right here in the middle, the centering point is this explanation of time in a, in a variety of ways. Look, it, it uses this language of lights and signs to mark sacred times and days in years. This, there's some really cool hidden stuff here in, in this rhythm. Let me summarize it like this. The rhythm of creation points us to life with God. The rhythm of creation points us to life with God. How does it do that? Let me just kind of get under the surface, into the rhythm here. So that word lights in the, in the vaults of the sky, right? The, the word lights in, in the Pentateuch, in, in the books of the law, that word light is always used about the lampstand that's in the tabernacle or in the future of the temple. This isn't just some random light. This is a this is a meaningful worship light. This is lit morning and evening at the worship of God in the daily offerings. 
This is a, a cue that even the lights of the sun and the stars are designed to tell you when to worship God. It, the, the structure of the planets, the rotation around the sun, is giving you, do you see it here in the language, sacred times. Now, a lot of your translations like ESV or even the old NIV will say seasons. And we think, yeah, winter and spring and summer and fall. But that's not what this idea is. It's not about seasons of temperature. This is, this is the word for the festivals in the worship calendar of Israel. We'll, we'll talk more about this in a couple of weeks. But all of these are an indication that God designed creation itself to tell us to worship him. He's expecting his, his people, his creatures, men and women made in his image, to live life with him in the worship of him. On the daily rhythm of the rise and the setting of the sun, he says that's the lampstand of worship to tell you when to offer to me. On the, the cycle of the sun and the moon and the, the planets, he says those are cues for Passover and for Day of Atonement. Those are cues for the seven festivals. They are signs pointing Signs point somewhere. These signs are pointing to life with God. We were made to live with God. The rhythm of creation. God designed creation to have cues for us to be with him. Now, that's not how most of us live our lives. That's not how most of us have a relationship to time. We'll have to talk about time more in a couple of weeks. But the rhythm of creation points to life with God. Tim Mackey, Bible Project guy, he says, when we, we look at the theme of time in Genesis 1, you see this design pattern emerge. That the foundation for all of Israel's rituals of sacred time, the structural significance of divinely ordered time, is worship. So he, he's sharing this with us. This is, this is really cool, but it's not the only rhythm we see. The second rhythm I see in Genesis 1 is a rhythm not just of creation, but a rhythm of God, rhythm of God himself. Genesis reveals a God of rhythm. You see this in the days themselves. Look at day one. And what's going to happen here, many scholars will point out, if you just open up almost any commentary, they'll show that God basically does the same thing day after day after day after day. God, God said, that's the first thing he does, he speaks, and he said, let there be light. And then the next thing that happens is, and there was. It actually obeys the word of God. Next thing, God saw that the light was good. And then he separated the light from the darkness, and God called, he named it. This is a sign of his lordship and sovereignty. He named the day, and the darkness he called night, and then every day closes with evening and morning, evening and morning. Now this is the rhythm that you'll see on day one, day two, day three, four, five, and six. Now after this, every day has a unique variation. It's like jazz. It's still in rhythm, but there's something new here. There's something fresh to catch your attention. God is a God of rhythm and creativity. He's, he's moving in patterns and rhythms. The rhythm of God that we see here balances work and rest. Balances it in many ways. You remember Genesis 1-2. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless. So the first balance that we see is that God is forming creation in days 1, 2, and 3. It's formless and it's empty. Days four, five, and six, he's filling the earth. It's, it's formless, it's empty, and then he balances work with rest. So the rhythm of God balances 
work and rest. Here's the seventh thing. Remember the end frame, the climactic finish of the creation story is one that we very rarely even give attention to. It's the Sabbath. But the seventh day, God finished the work he had been doing. And so on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Do you see the balance of work? God himself has a balance of work and rest. It's part of his rhythm. He's forming, he's filling, he's keeping a cadence and pattern. Yes, creativity and spontaneity, but still rhythm. The rhythm of God is a balance. But what we see in the same seventh-day account is that God moves at the rhythm of relationship. I just want to draw attention to some of the rhythms of relationship that we see here. Let me see if I have them up here. Yeah. One of the rhythms that we see here, just, do you see that God isn't, focused on instantaneous, but he's a God of process. God takes his time. It's actually really remarkable. God doesn't even have to speak, but he does. He can just urge something, and it could be. But he doesn't do that. Instead, day by day by day, and you may think, well, yeah, even if you take it extremely literally, it, it only takes six days. But yes, it takes six days, not an instant. How? Why? Because God is a God of process more than he is instant. He's not a microwave God. We have to wait on him very often. And we shouldn't be surprised because that's who he is. He's a God who moves at the rhythm of relationship. But he also moves not just in terms of process, but we see persons. He's it's not only not instant, it's not individual. You see, God created, and the Spirit hovers, and then he speaks his word. In Christian theology, and in Christian interpretation, we come to see that these are the three persons of the Godhead. It's sometimes called the Trinity. The Father, and the Son, and the Spirit. God is moving at the speed of words, and the speed of words is relationship. He created by his word. Jesus' right-hand man, John, he says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was light. God is creating not individually, but with persons. He moves at the rhythm of relationship. He's including the Son. He's including the Spirit. Let us make man in our image. He's inclusive. He's not only creating with persons, but he's sharing the load with persons. He does it with grace and abundance, not scarcity. The lights are invited to rule. The land is called to bring forth. He doesn't do everything on his own. He gives the power away. The animals are blessed, and they can be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then humans are blessed, and they're given rule and dominion over this whole realm. He gives away power because he's a God of relationship, moving at the rhythm of relationship. There's this contrast. A lot of people, they talk about Enuma Elish. It's a Babylonian creation myth. And there's a lot of really amazing, interesting parallels between the Babylonian creation myth and Genesis 1. There's also some pretty major differences. Here's John Golden Gay in his commentary. 
He says the ancient Babylonian <coughs> foundational story that resembles Genesis 1 has one great dissimilarity from it. In that myth, creation begins with a murder. It's a pretty big difference. <laughs> this guy isn't a god of murder. He's not a god of violence. He has no rivals. Instead, he shares his power with persons. He also, we see the relationship in terms of his rhythm of presence. Presence. Let's go back to Genesis 2, that seventh day, just to draw this out of the text. By the seventh day, God had finished his work that he had been doing. Now, this seems like an innocuous phrase that he's just done. But if you look at how this phrase gets used, it actually comes to have a lot of meaning. Remember in the story of Exodus, the people of Israel were given instructions on how to make a tabernacle. And after they finally built the tabernacle, it says that Moses had finished all his work. It uses this exact line. Scholars, they show us that in Genesis 1, Genesis 1 is telling the story of how God builds a temple. How God comes to live somewhere. When it says that God rested, it means that he came to live. He came to dwell. They said almost every culture in the ancient Near East had stories of how God came to live with people. That's what this is. It's a story of presence. So just as Moses finished all his work, and then the very next thing that happens in Exodus chapter 40 is that the presence of God comes to live in the tabernacle, so that's what happens in Genesis 2. God finished all his work, and then he comes in and rests. In his creation. But a lot of scholars, they point out that it's not so much spatial. It's not about a tabernacle. It's not about a place. It's about a time. You see it here. It's the seventh day. He, he comes and he makes his presence in time itself, even before he makes his presence in a space in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 2. He blessed the seventh day. God's blessed things already. He blessed the animals. Blessing means he gives it the capacity for life. He gives the animals capacity to life. You can be fruitful and multiply. He gives the capacity to life to humans. He blesses them. You can procreate. But the seventh day is not about procreation. It's about life in time with God. Abraham Heschel, a Jewish scholar, he says that the Sabbath, the seventh day, is a cathedral in time. The time to be with God. Presence. God moves at the rhythm of relationship, but he doesn't only bless it, he makes it holy. Time is sanctified. This is the first time holy is used in the Hebrew Bible. And it's talking about time. Holy. It's set apart. It's sanctified. It's designated for him. There's a lot of amazing things here, but the big point is this. That God moved at the rhythm of relationship. He's process-oriented. He shares his power with persons. And then we see his presence. So his presence is how we're designed to live. One more rhythm. I'll move quickly here. We've seen the rhythm of creation, time, and its structured pattern. We've seen the rhythm of God, and especially the relational rhythm of God. But for us, there's also a story of humanity that's introduced here. And it reveals a rhythm of life for us. Genesis reveals a rhythm of life for us. And it does this a lot of ways. 
Genesis 1, the image of God. How amazing is it that we're made in the image of God on day six, and then our first day is rest. Now, God spent six days resting, but our first day is just resting with God. But then two, it, it, it shifts the story from a different angle, and it says that the Lord God, he formed the man from the dust of the ground. We're dust. We're dirt. And he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. We are two things at once. We are, we are body and spirit. We are dust and breath. And in this limitation, we find our rhythm in our bodies. We become a unified whole. Not, not two different things. We become a living being. The word there is nefesh. Some translations call it a soul. But really, it's that we are a soul, not that you have a soul. You became this. We're, so somehow, we're going to have some, some rhythms and limits here. Here's some of them. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. That word put him is another word for rest. He settled him in. He made him to dwell. He rested him there in the garden. There's still this balance of work and rest. And it says the Lord God commanded the man, you're free. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. We'll come back to this in a couple of weeks. But you see that there's a freedom and a limits in the rhythm of humanity. There's a lot of other reflections we could do, but I want to save some uh, meat on bone for the rest of this month. There's a rhythm of life here that, that shows us that our life with God is in the limits of his design. Our life with God is in the limits of his design. So let me try to put these things together into what this will look like at Oikos Church for rhythm of life to be a core value here. Basically, what we mean by rhythm of life is keeping in step with the life of God. Keeping in step with the, with the rhythm and the life of God. There's three dimensions. Time, limits, and habits. So the first dimension is a Christ-centered calendar. We, we choose to live out the Christian calendar here, um, and at least partially. We, we choose a calendar that's not just inherited from culture but that tries to infuse every day with Christ. Where we're, we're moving on the rhythm of weeks, where we worship together every week, where, where Christ is at the center. Uh, it's the calendar of Israel seen through the life of Christ that gives us these annual kind of rhythms and patterns. The second piece of Christ-centered calendar isn't just the Christian calendar and those set days, but it's that our calendars are trying to really find margin, and we're not busy. You can find a busy church if you want a busy church that gives you a lot of stuff to do. Uh, we worship on Sundays, and we have group life. And that's about it. And there, that's on purpose. That is part of a rhythm of life that allows people and families to have margin. There's a, a second kind of big dimension to what we mean by rhythm of life here at Wicca's Church, and it's life-giving limits. Life-giving limits are essential for sustainable ministry. If you just run hard all the time until you burn out, 
that it doesn't reflect the way of the kingdom of God. And so we need limits for our leaders and for our, our volunteers. You can't serve more than blank. And we're in the process right now of going through all our ministry teams and setting good limits as best we can so that people can live in a rhythm, not of overwork, but a balance of work and rest in the kingdom. It's also a, a practice of Sabbath rest. And we're excited for future teachings and discipleship courses on how to practice Sabbath in our homes and our families. We, we want to equip you for Sabbath as a part of your of a part of your rhythm of life. But part of life giving limits, limits is also about having healthy boundaries. Again, this is something we want to help equip people for. It's not only something we want our, our church to have kind of organizationally, but it's something we think you want to have where you resist codependency and embrace relational dependency. Resist codependency and embrace dependency. That's what life-giving limits looks like. The third piece is about our habits. And here we call them the transforming graces. And the graces is an acronym that will be very familiar to you if you go through our partnership course called Welcome Home. This is just a set of habits that's taken from the life of Jesus. That's give thanks, reflect on the word, ask deeper questions, commune with God, eat together, and serve your neighbor. If that was too fast for you, stick around. Um, this is just part of what we do. We did it today. This is, we have given thanks, we've reflected on the word, we had a, a prompt where we asked deeper questions, we communed, we ate together at the table, and now we send people out to go and serve. This is something we do every Sunday, and it's something our groups do every month. This is what our groups do in, in our rhythms. And so there's a personal piece here where we want you to adapt transforming graces to your life. There's a group and community piece here where we want our groups to walk in the rhythm of play and reflect, of worship and serve. And there's what we do kind of all together in our gathering. The transforming graces are a big part of what we do as a church. Now, is this actual or aspirational? The reality is we're already doing these things. This is just a way of saying, on the front end, making explicit what was already implicit. This is one of the things that we're all about, a rhythm of life of what it looks like to practice discipleship together. But can you imagine, not just for our church, but for you personally, what could be different in your life if you found an actual sustainable rhythm where you could enjoy the presence of God? Where you could be present with other people, where that search for margin and that search for meaning and that search for presence all took shape. And wouldn't that look like life? Wouldn't it look like health and joy and peace in the Holy Spirit? I think this is what our hearts are longing for. And if you could do that, couldn't you even help your kids to kind of inherit that from you? Did y'all notice that Meg and I get teared up in Psalm 103 whenever it was talking about the children and the children's children? There's this generational piece that I long to give to my kids that maybe you didn't inherit, you didn't receive from your family. But don't let that stop you from embracing a rhythm that can be passed down to bless generations. And that can help you, but it could also help us. Because there's a lot of people kind of hurrying and busy and overwhelmed who are outside 
not only this church, but any church. And they are longing and looking for a community where they can experience real love and real relationships, even if they don't know how to find it or where to look. And I think if a community could embody the rhythms of life that we're designed for, it could become a magnet for people who would want to be a part of that family of God. So let me bless you. Would you stand? I want to pray for you. And then uh, you can go in peace and forgive your kids. Lord Jesus Christ, you say, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and that you will give us rest. We are here. We have come to you. We are weary. We are burdened. Lord Jesus, give us rest. Give us your yoke. Let us learn from you. Give us rest in our souls. Lord, help us desire to be present with you and help us practice these rhythms not from a place of guilt but from a place of longing would you bless our efforts in this church would you bless our efforts in our own calendars and lives and would you bless the generations that come after us that we could give them a good gift of life with you in Christ's name we pray amen